0: DeSantis Disney War enters its Stalingrad phase, plus Fox News settles. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook and Madeline Maddy Kearns. You are, of course, listening to a National You Podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Donors Trust and I on the FTC from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please. Consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Charlie, you were traveling, so you weren't on our episode earlier in the week. And I imagine you have just been waiting eagerly, counting the hours until we could do another episode that you appeared on. So you could say, I told you so, about Ron DeSantis and Disney You uh, predicted that this thing would drag on and become a morass for DeSantis, and it has come to pass. It was my hope originally a year ago. I supported what he did, but that it would end up being kind of a a rolled-up newspaper and a a swat on the nose for uh, Disney, and um, when the the year expired and— uh, the special district was supposed to go away. DeSantis could say, "Well, actually, you know, it's it's not going away. Uh, we we made our point, and let's all move on." Instead, he sort of said that, uh, but he uh, basically took over the special district by having his own appointees to the special board. And then, lo and behold, it turns out Disney, on the way out, out out of the door, with its its own members of that board, um, stripped a bunch of powers from the board. Uh, highly embarrassing to DeSantis, and he threatened um, in his statement the other day when he was saying, you know, this can't stand and it's all going to be revoked, that, well, maybe we'll build our own amusement park, maybe we'll build a state prison on adjoining state land. So um, uh, go ahead and tell us why you're so right.
1: Well, I haven't changed my view on this question since the news first broke that Florida intended to strip Disney of its special status. And that view, as you know, is that while Florida can do that, and that no company has the right to enjoy a special district, the action was clearly retaliatory, and therefore inappropriate. And as an aside, the, the system that we had in place before in Florida worked and was there for a good reason now I can't remember whether I said it on this podcast or in a podcast I did for the spectator in London or on Megan Kelly's show or elsewhere but I did say about a year ago that I suspected that this would drag on become a quagmire make DeSantis look petty and get in the way in some form around the time that he was gearing up to run for president, and so it has come to pass. I take no joy in that. I know you were being facetious when you said that I'd been counting down the hours. Quite the opposite is true. I wish that DeSantis hadn't done this. I think it was a mistake. I continue to think it's a mistake, and it makes me think less of him. I think he's been an excellent governor. I think this was unnecessary. He had already won his policy victory, with a bill, the parental rights bill, that I supported. And it turned out that the vast majority of Floridians are supported, including a majority of self-identified Democrats. The problem DeSantis has here, and I know I'm going to get emails about this, saying, why are you in favor of special treatment? The problem DeSantis has here is that this action was pretextual. It is not that... In a more general sense, the legislature can't undo this arrangement, can't reverse actions taken by Floridian elected representatives in 1967. It is that this was pretextual, and we all know it. The system was not broken, and the measure applied, in effect, only to Disney. Now, in the interest of fairness, I should say I am equally baffled by Disney's behavior here, and by progressives who have criticized this. The initial decision by Disney to wade into this area was dumb. It doesn't justify retaliation from the government, but it was dumb. And it's digging its heels in here is dumb. Now, I don't expect Disney to do anything other than look out for its own shareholders' interests, although if that was its aim, it wouldn't have commented on this bill in the first place. But Disney's playing this pretty cute, and I can see why, in the abstract, anyone who believes that the rule of law applies to everyone would be irritated by what Disney did, which was to try to get around the changes that were made by the legislature in a cute way. There was some line in there about the covenant that they had apparently failed to disclose properly obtaining until the last descendant of Charles III of England passed away. Why Disney chose to push this and push this, I don't understand. But it did. And it looks as if it's going to continue to do so. And I do not understand why the governor of Florida, who has been responsible for so many positive changes, as well as continuing the good governance that Florida has enjoyed for 30 years, is so obsessed with this or felt the need to get into this in the first instance in the way he did. And I think that's come to fruition. And I'll just finish this by saying, I am saying this because I am a conservative. I'm saying this because I don't want the government to retaliate. Again, I have no issue with governments taking away special treatment if they wish to although I think these special districts, which are all different in their own way, do work. But if that's not the consensus view, that's fine. Disney is not obligated to keep this. But as a conservative, I find the retaliation distasteful. What I don't want to have happen is for people who hold my view on this to be lectured by progressives. Because progressives have no issue with this whatsoever. They try this all the time. If the issue here were Exxon and Gavin Newsom... Elizabeth Warren would be dancing on top of the Empire State Building every day in celebration. But that doesn't give me an excuse to because I don't believe what Elizabeth Warren does. And this has made me think less of DeSantis. It's made me think less of his strategic insight. And I dissent from those who think that it's going to help him in the long run. It may have helped him in the election in Florida last year. But if it drags on, uh, which Disney seems determined to ensure that it does. I think this is going to be uh, something of a weight around his neck. So,
0: Charlie, do you have any idea? The DeSantis people are saying that what Disney did was illegal. Like there weren't the required notices made of the meetings where they're making the change or the changes themselves. Do you have Do you have any idea who, who who might be right on that front?
1: I think that the state of Florida is probably right on that front. As I say, I find Disney's behavior here equally inexplicable Disney was playing fast and loose with the rules and it got caught it probably assumed that DeSantis wanted to dispense with this issue and it was wrong now he's back on the war path and I think given the law that was passed he's justified in that I just don't see a great benefit here to Florida And, you know, I didn't mention this in my previous answer, but even if you believe that this is necessary, even if you like the law, even if you don't care about the retaliation or wish to downplay it, and even if you now say, look, Disney was playing fast and loose, therefore DeSantis now has to stand up, DeSantis should not be standing around making jokes about building a prison next to Disney World. He should not be threatening to increase taxes on Disney World or put toll roads inside Disney World, the effect of which is just to increase costs for the consumer. That's why I think this has started to look petty, irrespective Mm -hmm, of my other objections.
0: Yeah, so Maddie, th- this has opened up DeSantis to a, a lot of criticism. Larry Kudlow, our, our friend, uh, former Trump e- economic official, over on uh, Fox News last night saying you know, DeSantis is starting to seem obsessed. All the other uh, candidates or potential candidates have been teeing off on him. Of course, Trump say, saying, you know, DeSantis played, got embarrassed by by Disney. Chris Christie saying, well, if he, he, if he got played by Disney this way, can we really trust him to neg- negotiate with China or Russia? Uh, Chris Sununu saying um, that – Desantis, it, this is convoluting what a Republican um, should be and what should do, what he should do. So it's it's really opened him up.
2: Yeah, I mean, this was supposed to be uh, a war on wokeness, and Disney was the stand in for this. And I think if if you look. When this actually this culture war started, Um, it did it did make a degree of sense. I mean, I take Charlie's point that it wasn't a good long term strategy, but in the short term, it it worked pretty well. There was huge public anger when Disney, a a company that's supposed to be, uh, with serving children basically there was huge public anger when they weighed in on on this issue of parental rights and I think that DeSantis was was reading the room when he when he made this fundamentally populist move and um and it 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 definitely in the beginning hurt Disney way more than it hurt him it damaged their reputation their ratings their stock they obviously had the CEO who was fired and replaced and and then actually it seemed like they'd Possibly learned their lesson. They, they were going to try stay out of politics. After after that that episode, DeSantis went on to win by a landslide, biggest in forty years. It delivered a great victory for Republicans. So seemed like a victory. The problem was is. That, as is often the case with DeSantis, is he doesn't necessarily pay attention to some of the details. And there was this 11th-hour deal struck, which I think he he could have been p- paying closer attention to. This opened up to two lines of Republican attack, as you've mentioned. There's the um, the Trump uh, line, which is that he's been outsmarted by by Mickey Mouse. Um, so it's there, there's just embarrassment there. And then there's also the the anti-business um, line of attack, and so so much as this is about him versus Disney, it does look like he's just picking fights with with a particular business. His point, I think, was to pick pick a fight with wokeness to have this sort of David and Goliath image where he was the guy who was willing to say no. He wasn't going to just be defensive and slow as Republicans often are with culture war issues. He was going to be forceful and and, and behave in a way so as to deter corporations from, from doing this. Um, and unfortunately, he just ended up with egg on his face. And I think that it's as much as anything else, it's been how he's executed this. And um, he should, if he was going to go down this route, he should have been paying closer attention.
0: Yeah, the other thing, I mean, he basically prevailed. I mean, Disney backed off. And I, I, I know from personal experience, Disney is scared about their brand at the moment, worried about it. Um, wants to be more cautious about upsetting conservatives doesn't mean you're not going to see a gay character in you know Disney programming ever again. Unfortunately, it, um, you know the, 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 uh, the, their last movie was horrible. No one, no one watched it um, in part because of that. But they're they're aware of that and they're aware of the problem. And what Desantis did, I think, was a catalyzing event for for them. But r- rather than declaring victory and, and go home, he's he's still in this uh, slog of a battle. So Charlie, uh, more discouraging Desantis news. He came up to Washington D.C. Uh, to uh, ha- have a, uh, a meetings with um, congressional Republicans to speak at the Heritage Foundation's 50th anniversary uh, event later this week. And uh, he, uh, th- this is the time, and this was really clever that uh, Trump and his people uh, decided to drop a bunch of endorsements from members of the Florida delegation. And and this is, you know, I, I, I wrote a column this week and we talked about prior in the podcast. I think people have been too down on DeSantis lately. Maybe they're too up. Uh, several months ago but this is really disturbing because it just shows he, he didn't do the personal work um, people will say well look he's not a, a real uh, he's not a candidate yet not an announced candidate so he really can't be competitive in terms of en- endorsements but you'd think he'd have better relationships with these folks and what they've said uh, is you know Trump Trump called me Trump had me to Mar-a-Lago where it was DeSantis' pollster who reached out to me another c- congressman said he got hurt earlier this year Trump called him DeSantis didn't should that matter? You know, is that huge in the scheme of things? No, but it's those sort of personal interactions that are part of the warp and wolf of politics. And DeSantis has been lacking in that area.
1: And this is the criticism that you hear most frequently about DeSantis. Get rid of all of the fluff, all of the biased media nonsense, all of the de-Satan stuff you get from MSNBC. People who are actually reporting on Florida politics advance this criticism more than any other, that DeSantis just doesn't particularly like spending time with people, that he is very much a homebody, that his advisor is his wife. Now, I don't think in and of itself that's a big problem. It. Didn't seem to hurt Obama. At least it didn't prevent Obama from being elected president. Probably hurt him as president. Ronald Reagan was somebody who famously had few friends except his own wife. But by the time that Reagan ran for president, of course, he had been pretty famous. He was the governor of California twice. And then he worked for the General Electric and met hundreds of thousands of people. DeSantis is still building a network outside of Florida, or if he's going to run for president, he ought to be. And if it is true, as it seems to be, that he's not calling people personally, that he doesn't want to spend time with them, then he's going to suffer somewhat from that. And the the criticism of the criticism from the right, which feels good viscerally, is that it is often rendered as Ron DeSantis doesn't like spending time with donors. Good. I don't think anyone in America is going to hear that and like the guy less. But if it's Ron DeSantis doesn't like spending time with his fellow Republicans, with the people he needs, with the people he wants to endorse him, with the people he would rely on if he became president, then yeah, that actually does become an issue. So although I have no knowledge of my own, either way, I've never met the guy, I've only seen him in the flesh once at a local event he did for the military. I do begin to understand why for four or five years, Florida reporters have signaled that as a potential liability in the future. So the question is going to be, is that something that he can fix? Or is this who he is? Is this part and parcel of what makes him work? Is his total unwillingness to care about what other people other than his family think? What made him an effective governor during COVID? I, I don't know the answer, but this is why we have primaries, I think, is to expose this stuff for the electorate before the candidates in question enter the crucible.
0: Yeah, so Maddie, he must be a real, a real, a true introvert because there's one thing to be shy, you know, going into a room where no one knows you and no one's going to care about you and you just have to make your, your, your way. Uh, it's another to be adored by people and to have them desperate just to, to have you stop, shake their hand, pat them on the shoulder, and, and they'll, they'll just say how awesome you are and just light up. And, and that's the, the situation DeSantis has been in for a while now, and you'll hear these stories about <clears> – <throat> book signings people lined up outside a venue you know waiting waiting hours for him and he'll just walk to the the front of the line not say anything to to anyone sit down and sign books without making uh, eye contact so that that's real that's real introvert behavior and it's not as though if you're an introvert you can't succeed in, in politics and succeed at politics at the highest level uh, Reagan I wouldn't don't know if I'd call him an introvert but he had this sort of standoff uh, offish uh, element to him, a private person that that a lot of people felt you know they they could never really truly know Barack Obama. You'd hear stories about uh, White House Christmas parties where he he wouldn't he wouldn't be at the party and they just descend uh, from the the residence down down the steps and and make uh, some remarks and then and then head back up you know and and watch watch basketball or what else what what else he whatever else he was doing, but he had you know a a a million watt smile. And this this national natural charisma that makes up for a lot of that. So this is DeSantis can come overcome this. There are signs that they're working on it. They made a big deal. He had a, a relatively small event at the Heritage Foundation meeting with uh, a couple dozen members of Congress, and you'll see press reports that that he stayed to the very end, greeted everyone personally, and looked them in the eye. And that's good. Uh, and but that's going to be work for him if he's an introverted guy, and he's going to have to do it uh, every single uh, day, every single hour out on the campaign trail.
2: Yeah, it's going to be work for him and it's going to be the complete opposite for Trump because that's his natural mm-hmm. asset. I mean, Trump is it's easy it's easy to forget this because so many people hate him so viscerally, but Trump is very charming. I mean, mm-hmm. he um, he, he gets people. On, yeah, gets people on the phone, invites them uh, to Mar-a-Lago. You know, he. I think also, it, I, I know you've mentioned this yourself, Rich, but other people have, have commented on the fact that, especially for people in, in right-leaning publications, Trump is was Trump was an extraordinarily accessible president. Um, you could get him on the phone in a way that was was difficult. Yeah, Uh, with with other politicians. And I think this is just his his natural um, asset. Now, how how valuable that is can obviously be overemphasized. I mean, endorsements are important, but they're not the most important thing. It does seem like DeSantis is realizing that he's got some catching up to do. Um, Like like we said in the, the last segment, you know, DeSantis can be kind of slow to respond. With some of these things, I also think, in his defense, um, he has a pretty demanding full time job right now. In a way that Trump doesn't. I mean, Trump Trump has all day, uh, every day to think he, about. Yeah, even, even as president, Trump didn't have a demanding full time job. Right, exactly. He was he was much more. Uh, he, I mean, for, for Trump, uh, what other people think of him and who's supporting him is kind of like a full time preoccupation all the time, anyway. Right. Um. And he now has more time on his hands, and uh, DeSantis is a very busy guy. Uh, Your know, Republican legislature has been has been busy he's had this abortion bill um and so you can you can understand that the, from a human side of things just how these things don't necessarily aren't necessarily prioritized uh, in the way that they ought to be mm-hmm. does seem like he's got smart people around him telling him hey like you need to get on top of this um as as you mentioned as well he hasn't formally announced yet so um so he does have a little bit of an excuse there um But, uh, yeah, he's he's definitely going to work on it. It looks like he is. Well, and just to add to
1: what Maddie says, he hasn't announced yet. That is a sign of strength, too, that we're sitting around saying, Mm -hmm. why didn't this Florida congressman endorse DeSantis? Well, the guy who hasn't announced that he's running for president. That Mm -hmm. certainly demonstrates that he is number two in the rankings, that we all expect... Florida congressman to be lining up to endorse a guy who hasn't said whether he's running for president. A lot of people in the history of presidential primaries would have died to have that sort of chatter. The issue, again, as Maddie says, is whether or not he can capitalize on it.
0: So, Charlie, let's let's uh, do the exit question and, and get you basically to kind of put a number on what, what you're saying. Rate the Ron DeSantis. Pre presidential campaign so far zero disaster. It just shows is is not going to happen for him. Ten perfecto couldn't be any better. Zero to ten, DeSantis pre campaign.
1: I think it's a five or a six. I think the jury is out. He has done well in getting what he wants out of the legislature in Florida, which is really important or should be, really important to his potential message. People have asked, why didn't he announce already? Well, first off, it still is pretty early. Second, he has to have a whole bunch of accomplishments under his belt when he announces to make the case for himself as strongly as possible. So in putting together... The argument, the rationale, the logic underneath his candidacy—I'd say he's done really well. This side of it, though, does increasingly seem to be weak. So I don't know. I, I think it's a five or a six. I don't think that he is inevitably going to set the world on fire when he runs. But I agree with you that reports of his political death are highly premature.
0: Matt is here to ten.
2: I, I probably. Slightly higher than Charlie, probably a six or a seven. Um, I think that he does have a lot of strengths. They're not being focused on right now, uh, for obvious reasons. But um, and and the mistakes that he has made or or, or potentially seems to be making, he's he's quick with damage control and uh, and learning from those. So I think six or seven.
0: I'm going to go with a five as well. His book tour was a success, which was important. He drew crowds. He sold the book. The legislative session is going fantastically well. You know, he has supermajorities, so it's a little, little hard to mess up, but still a, a key predicate of his campaign is, is racking up these substantive victories, which is happening and is getting uh, relatively neglected should be uh, have more attention than it's getting but there's no doubt he's he's lost some ground uh, to trump the uh, the glow of the re-election victory wearing off somewhat the uh, the opposite of glow from uh, trump's role in the midterm debacle wearing off some for trump obviously the uh, indictment but there have been some Mistakes. I mean, the Ukraine statement debacle—totally self-generated, totally avoidable. There's been, um, you know, he—he's a, a little in-and-out quality on whether he's—he's he's actually going to engage with with Trump. He—he's gotten pushed a little by Trump into semi-engaging, but the—the the big thing is he, he's not in yet, and um, there's some indications he, he might not be a great retail politician. You know, we, the endorsement a big sign. Of that, so that's important information. But we still we we, we need them to, to get in. We need to see how the announcement goes, whether Trump. There's some signs the indictment bump is wearing off a little bit for Trump. So you squint the right way that uh, Trump comes down a little bit more from the brag bump, and DeSantis you know gets a, a 10 point gain in the national polls, which isn't crazy from a successful announcement. And then um, you know it's looking looking uh, uh, quite competitive. So a uh, let's let's uh, I do a, a let's wait and see. Ultimately five. For DeSantis. With that, let's pause and hear from our first sponsor. This episode, Donors Trust. Cancel culture doesn't just affect comedians and commentators anymore. It also affects everyday hardworking Americans. How so? It derails their charitable giving. Take Jeannie's story, for example. Jeannie did her charitable giving through one of the big national giving account providers, that is, until without a clear reason. It refused to send her charitable dollars to a conservative nonprofit. She shares her story this way, quote, I'm a conservative. I believe America is great despite her imperfections and that capitalism brings great good to society rather than government, she said. Earlier this year, I continued to see the need to support conservative organizations, so I requested another gift from my donor-advised fund, and it was rejected, she added. That is why I moved to Donors Trust Jeannie wanted a donor-advised fund that shares her conservative principles and found that in Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund committed to limited government personal responsibility and free enterprise. Do you worry about cancel culture getting in the way of your charitable goals? Do you simply want a principled partner helping you support causes close to your heart? If so, consider opening a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust. For more information on how Donors Trust can help you with your charitable giving, visit www.donorstrust.org slash nr To receive a free copy of their donor prospectus, that's www.donorstrust.org/nr. Please check it out. So, Maddie, big news also this week: Fox settled this uh, Dominion lawsuit right on the cusp of the trial, which was going to start. Uh, Tuesday, they are within hours of opening arguments, and then we got the news that Fox settled for an eye-popping $700 million, which even for Fox is not a rounding error. What do you make of it?
2: Yeah, so I think there is um – I mean, there was a lot of speculation that they would settle, and and question as to why they, they hadn't. I mean, there's um, an element of are they just playing the game that uh, they they just want to fight this on on the principle that they don't want to look like um, they knew exactly what they were doing and, and lying, and it certainly looks that they did. Um, so I think ultimately uh, it's probably in their interest that that they settled. Uh, it's it's telling that they didn't apologise, though they're still they're still. Um, uh, trying to do some some damage to control there. Um, I also think that it, it was noticeable how many journalists seemed really disappointed <laughs> that they settled, that they weren't going to get to follow this um, trial, get people in the hot seat, Tucker Carlson and, and others. Um,
0: yeah, Maddie, there was an anchor at a rival news network that was pressing a Dominion lawyer. Why didn't you get them to apologize? You could have gotten them to apologize on air. You blew it.
2: Yeah, well, they, they, the thing about the... Uh, if they had gone to, to, to trial. They, they All the evidence had been out there, all their dirty laundry had been aired. There's also a, a concern that they, they would have fought it to the end. I mean, they do. I mean, obviously, that's a huge amount of money, but they do have very deep pockets. Um, and of course, if this had got all the way up to the Supreme Court, um the the actual malice standard may may well have uh, been in jeopardy. I mean, justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch have, have mentioned that they'd like to revisit that standard. So it's probably a good thing for journalists that um, that they did settle because obviously um, having more uh, liberal libel laws is certainly um, in the United Kingdom. It's it's easier to to prove libel and that that can have a chilling effect on speech. But in this case, it was just pretty clear cut. I mean, they, they knew what they were uh, platforming was false. Um, they weren't covered by the uh, the neutral report privilege. Um, they, they were opinion journalists. And in fact, I think it was... Uh, Delaware Superior Court Judge Eric Davis, who who pointed out that there was at least nineteen cases where Fox News hosts or or guests had made comments that weren't opinion; they were they were false statements of fact. Um, and so it's, I mean, they, they they definitely made the right decision in in settling. And uh, I think those who are disappointed um, that they won't get the great show uh, should should maybe think twice, because it's probably a good thing that we have the actual malice standard.
0: So Charlie, we talked about this earlier in the week, and I have to give props to Jim Garrity, who, if I remember correctly, you know, I always say Jim was right about his uh, uh, his predictions, right, Charlie? No, no matter what, uh, he he was the one who uh, uh, was heaviest leaning heaviest on Fox is going to settle this thing. So they certainly would have lost at trial. Maybe they would have won on appeal eventually, but the problem at a at a trial, you're going to have all these uh, all, all these. Uh, personalities on the stand you have Rupert Murdoch on the stand e- even if they they made the the most sterling defense of Fox's coverage of the election fraud claims it's still embarrassing <laughs> it's that it's not great and it would have been an uh, incredible spectacle and then you have the finding of the the, the judge as Maddie mentioned that a, a number of these things just weren't Weren't opinion; they were statements of fact, and the judge said Fox is not acting as a, a disinterested news gatherer. It it was uh, it advancing these claims affirmatively.
1: Yeah, I'm. I am a free speech guy, and I have a fairly broad conception of what should be permissible both in the criminal and civil context i do think having read through this even under america's narrow libel laws fox was probably guilty at least on some counts the system you want to avoid is britain's where it doesn't matter whether or not you knew or intended harm or what you will. But Fox did know. Not only were these statements of fact, they were statements of fact that the network grasped were not true. And they said them anyway, and they said them anyway because they got caught up in the Trump madness that any reasonable observer could see was, was a lie. And I think this should serve as a warning. Don't lie down with Donald Trump. No Stormy Daniels joke intended. You will get hurt. $787 million was the settlement. I believe I'm right in saying that the... Annual revenues of Dominion are 100 million dollars. If you assume their profit percentage is 15, 20 percent, how many years profit is that? That's a lot of money. You know this. This was not an opinion, really, was it? I I think that that is the difference. This was a fact. I mean, if you're saying the election was stolen, and one of the means by which that was achieved was corruption within the voting machines provided by this particular company. You're you're making a metaphysical claim. You're making a, a claim like, my computer doesn't work, which is not so much an opinion, it's a verifiable fact. Um, so I... I I don't really see this as a as a First Amendment question, at least in some of its particulars. And I'm assuming that Fox realized that, and that's why it's settled.
0: Yeah, so just a big thing in these cases is <laughs> sincerity. You know, it's, it's one thing if you if you say it and you truly believe it. It's, it's another if you say it and, and you actually know it's it's wrong. And, you know, the Fox basically panicked after the election. The, the ratings went way down. But a lot of that, you know, it was the, the reaction to the the Arizona call, which I, I do think was premature, it ended up being right. The people who made the call say they had zero doubt ever that it was going to be wrong. They ended up being right. But uh, uh, given how narrow that margin ended up being, it's it's hard for me to understand how how you could have made that call. So early, so it was partly a reaction to that. and but it was partly a natural reaction to losing an election. A- after your side loses an election, every, everyone is dispirited. Of course, there is an added element to that because Trump was stoking these fraud claims. But uh, so yeah, Fox's ratings were going to go down. And they saw Newsmax's ratings going up, at least for a period. But that was never going to be sustainable. I mean Fox is a juggernaut. They're really good at what they do. It's really good TV, which is really important when you're in a TV uh, business. so they they should have um, you know, I think, just been been willing to kind of wait it out and and take the hit and have confidence in their their product. And you know, ultimately, Newsmax uh, actually fairly quickly, Newsmax went down, and Fox went right back. Up, so Charlie, ask a question to you. Most Republican voters will acknowledge that there wasn't fraud, uh, tr- true fraud, Dominion-style fraud, real, no kidding fraud. We're not talking about Twitter suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story, changing of of votes or stuffing um, stuffing the ballot boxes. They'll, they'll acknowledge that, you know, by, by. Um, well, they, they most of them acknowledge it now, no matter what the polling says. Or they'll acknowledge it by 2028, if, you know, Trump runs again and, and loses, it's washed, washed out of the system. Or they'll acknowledge it never.
1: Well, the first part of that question is, in my estimation, inextricable from the question of whether Donald Trump is going to win the nomination. If Republicans who vote in primaries, acknowledge before the 2024 presidential election that the 2020 election was not stolen and that Donald Trump lost it, then I think he will not be the nominee. If they don't, if one of the other two options, 2028 or never, comes to pass then i think trump has a really good shot because the primary argument against him from the perspective of the median republican voter not me i think he disqualified himself is whether or not he can win and and that he's a loser so i don't know i find that really hard to answer because i don't know whether or not he's going to be the nominee i I think this is moving in the right direction. Polling certainly suggests that this is moving in the right direction. The number of Republicans who say that Trump lost the 2020 presidential election seems to have risen over and over for the last six months. What I can't factor in is whether that will change once given a presidential platform and put in debates trump starts to make his argument again in earnest and then all the wrong people in quotation marks push back and that you know, internal negative polarization kicks in i i, I just don't know I, I the problem i have here rich is i cannot imagine believing this crap like i i cannot imagine having fallen for it It was so obvious right from the beginning that this was a self-serving lie, that the people who were peddling it were charlatans, that the people who were echoing it were scared ciphers. So I don't know what it takes to believe it, and I can't tell you what's going to happen with the average. Yeah, voter, the, uh, that?
0: Just... that woman lawyer who was part of the notorious Sydney press conference. Powell. No, the sorry, <laughs> I got to be more specific. I, I'd be more specific, but I can't remember her name. It wasn't Sydney Powell. She was at the uh, notorious press conference with Rudy Giuliani. Um, you know where the, the streaks were coming down, uh, uh, Rudy's. Uh, face, I forget her name, but she she settled with with someone uh, a bar association. Um, it, she just said she lied. She, she just flat out lied, right. you know. And, and good people believed her. So, Maddie, most Republicans actually, whatever the polling says, uh, they they uh, have already given this up. They'll give it up um, by twenty twenty eight. They'll give it up never.
2: Um, well, I, I share Charlie's uh, condition on it, but I think I think. Probably in the medium term, they'll they'll give it up. I think it was Jim Garrity on the corner who made the point that um, the it becomes more difficult to believe this lie if if it stops being platformed and spread. And uh, certainly now, given this lawsuit, I think that uh, television networks covering Trump, um, who doubtless will continue with this lie, um, will feel obliged to push back hard because otherwise they could be facing. Uh, similar lawsuits.
0: So most Republicans, I don't know. It's probably it's it's somewhere around twenty twenty eight or or never. I would say. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode. As Americans deal with rising prices, record inflation, and fears of a looming recession, President Biden's Federal Trade Commission, under the direction of Chair Lena Khan, is pursuing anti-consumer, anti-competitive measures against American industries, killing innovation, and threatening America's dynamic. 21st century economy and the worst part American taxpayers are footing the bill for bureaucrats at the FTC to threaten to break up businesses and stop mergers and acquisitions. That's why the Competitive Enterprise Institute launched their Eye on FTC campaign exposing abuses of power at the FTC calling on Congress to reassert oversight. Over this rogue agency and protecting consumers from government overreach. CEI is defending free markets and American capitalism, which are the greatest forces for peace and prosperity the world has ever known. To learn more, visit Ionftc.com. That's E-Y-E-O-N-F-T-C dot com. And consider helping CEI. Stop Abuses of Power at the FTC. We have lots of friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. They do excellent work. So please, please, please check it out. So speaking of the opposite of excellent work, Maddie, we had this these terrible scenes last weekend in Chicago of these kids who had organized themselves um, via social media platforms just running through downtown uh, Chicago in mobs, breaking stuff, breaking windows, assaulting people. People got shot. And the conduct was shocking enough. Then you had the commentary by the outgoing mayor and the incoming mayor. It was like, well, you know, okay, this, this wasn't so great. But please, these kids, you know, uh, don't, don't pick on these kids. Lori Lightfoot, she had an exchange with a reporter outside an event. And uh, I, I assume this wasn't, you know, a reporter from a right-wing blog. It was just a, a Chicago journalist saying, you know, what do you think of the mayhem? And she's like, I, I reject that word. How could you possibly use the word mayhem? Most of the kids were just out because it was nice, you know, summery weather. <laughs> it was a classic kind of mostly peaceful defense. And this is like, you know, if you wanted to have a, a picture in the dictionary to illustrate mayhem, this this would, this would be it.
2: Yeah, this is... Um sadly this is what we've come to expect um, from not not just in terms of uh, the violence and nihilism of of youth in, in many of these places but what we've come to expect from a progressive leadership. Um, it always makes me think of that song Officer Krupke from West Side Story where it's like you know, they go for all the reasons why uh, bad behavior is just misunderstood, and this is, you know, the caution against demonizing people who are uh, vandalizing things and being violent, and it's saying it's not constructive to demonize youth. It was uh, the mayor elect, Brandon Johnson, who said that. I'm just curious, what what is a constructive? approach, does he think? Because nothing nothing they've come up with seems to work. Um, not, nothing they, they seem to come up with uh, in, in trying to understand and, and excuse this this uh, really anti-social behaviour, it seems to make the slightest bit of difference. If anything, it just encourages it. And it's actually a similar thing that we see on college campuses, um, where violent, aggressive, uh, frankly, just Unacceptable behavior is is passed off as expression. These people are these people are victimized and they're just expressing themselves. Um, so you have this weird inversion where, where violence is speech and, and speech is, is violence. You saw this recently with the the debate um, Michael Knowles did with uh, Brad Palumbo um, at um, I'm blanking on the university but the uh, university on the northeast coast and. Um, and you had uh, student protesters outside burning an effigy of Michael Knowles, and this is this is supposedly just you know par for the course now. This is just expression. Uh, no, it's not. It's it's threatening. It's thuggish. It's violent. It Has no place in a civilized society. It certainly has no place on a college campus. Um, and until people in leadership roles start saying that and start putting their money where their mouth is and enacting harsher policies, we're just going to see more and more of this behavior.
0: Yeah, Charlie, I always think when things like this come up, this doesn't involve education, but um, of Eva Moskowitz, Witz, who's the founder of the Harlem Success Academies, these incredible charter schools in New York City, and she is a dyed-in-the-wool progressive. She's a FDR, New Deal style Democrat who is a strict disciplinarian and puts up with no BS because she realizes that's bad for the kids and bad for the things she ultimately wants to achieve which is teaching uh, poor kids and so this, this kind of progressivism, this cracked, woke progressivism that uh, Laura, Lori Lightfoot and her successor, unfortunately, represent is really bad on top of everything else. It's bad for, for public order and, and safety, but it's also not good for these kids and for these families to, to in effect, say it's it's okay to do this, or at least we're going to make excuses for it.
1: There's not much that's new in our politics, and while we have newish labels in the annals of human history conservative progressive we really are talking about an age-old distinction here between people whose political outlook fundamentally treats people as individuals and people whose political outlook fundamentally does not the conservative predisposition is to look at people as individuals. The progressive predisposition, and I would distinguish that from American liberalism historically, is to look at people as members or representatives or really automatons from their group. Progressives are obsessed with groups. They're obsessed with placing those groups into hierarchies and Matrices And the ultimate consequence of doing that is that you remove from people agency. And when you watch people running through a city causing mayhem and havoc, you don't say, oh, look, there's John Smith. You say, look, there is a teenager or a black man or a tall person. Or homosexual. And I think not only is that crazy when it comes to the question of the rule of law and public order, it's incredibly offensive in that it is taking people who are not mere representatives of some group, but are individuals, and it is assuming that they have no control over their own destiny and that they should be treated as if they are the victims of all of these invisible systemic forces. And of course, that works in both directions. It's a
0: classic uh, soft soft bigotry of low expectations and, and President W. Bush's famous
1: phrase. Right. So you have the guy on the street who's burning the car. So instead of saying that guy should not burn that car, you're saying, well, he's doing it because he belongs to, insert group here. But You're also doing it the other way around. The kid who shares all of the immutable characteristics of the guy who's burning the car, who is not burning the car, who is sitting at home, maybe he's got a job, Mm -hmm. maybe he's doing his homework, maybe he's just chatting with his grandmother, you are linking that guy to the other one.
0: Yeah, maybe he'll become a cop.
1: Well, maybe he'll become a cop. Maybe he'll be a loser for his whole life, but at least he's not burning a car in the streets Mm -hmm. of Chicago. Mm Mm-hmm. This is, to me, the end point of refusing to do what the American creed requires us to do, which is to treat people as individuals. This is the end point, and it is ugly as hell.
0: So, Maddie Kearns, next question to you. Conservatives are and or will win the debate, winning or win the debate over law and
2: order? Uh, Yes, they they will, because the real-life consequences are felt by everyone, regardless of their political persuasion. Charlie?
1: I mean, Maddie's right in the long run. I just don't know how long that run's going to be. Chicago doesn't seem to change. The voters don't seem to alter their preferences or try something new. I don't see a Rudy Giuliani back in his useful form on the horizon, I guess. But you know, Rich, there's this uh, sort of uh, social science observation called the Curly Effect, which I believe comes from Antebellum Boston. I may have got the timing wrong. And the, the point that was made was that if you run a city or a jurisdiction really badly, and all of the people who are upset about it, leave and go somewhere else, you perversely enough become more, not less powerful. Yep. And I wonder how much that is going to happen to Chicago in the short term. The people who are the most bothered by this, the people who are sufficiently angered to up and move to Wisconsin or Texas or Florida or what you will, are not the people that need to be convinced because they're going to go vote in south carolina <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i don't know i mean it's easy to move now so i don't know so uh,
0: we're going to win it and are winning it at the national level but we're, we're not going to win it enough to uh, to affect some of these uh, blue blue cities, which are just uh, bent on self destruction. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Maddie, you finally gotten around to watching Cast Castaway. What what took you so long?
2: Well, I actually, I should have told you that uh, it was re-watching Castaway. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I had, in fact, seen it before, although not in a very long time, because I'd forgotten um, various things about the movie, not least that there is a terrible plane crash. And uh, as I've mentioned before in this podcast, oh, that's I'm so I forgot about the <laughs>
0: yeah, terrifying scene.
2: Yeah, I'm a, I never a nervous flyer, but um, I have oh, to fly yeah, it a lot. That's exactly <laughs> needed to see. <laughs> yeah, you so watch um, it on a plane? No, I didn't watch it on a plane, but I—it's—it's never—it's never long before my next flight, so I, I will have those images mm-hmm. um, on my on my mind. But no, just such a such a great movie, such great acting. Uh, Tom Hanks really is an American treasure. So, very so I great. was
0: actually uh, fl- flipping through the, the cable channels the other day, and I, I did not stop to watch it. But Castaway was being. Shown on some station or other, and I thought to myself, "Wow, I, I remember that movie as being really boring, and I bet it's even more boring <laughs>
2: now." But that's not true. That wasn't your. I, I don't think it's boring. I mean, there are a lot of scenes where there's no talking because he's mm-hmm. obviously on a right. deserted island by himself. But uh, I just think the acting's so strong, and, and you really, um, you just you're just gripped by the, the the psychological turmoil that anyone in that position would would. Be in so
1: also maddie you're comparing it to the weather in scotland so you're probably looking <laughs> at the island and saying wow the circumstances aren't ideal but at least it looks preferable
2: <laughs> it does it looks, looks sunny and there's there's no wild animals remarkably so um things could always be worse
0: <laughs> so charlie you were o- awoken by a emergency broadcasting system test at four forty five a.m
1: yes This did not thrill me. In fact, it terrified me. I tweeted out that at least I know my adrenaline glands still work. Both my wife and I sat bolt upright. Our iPhones were blaring this noise that sounds like something from a Cold War movie and flashing emergency. Thankfully, the next word was test after emergency. I think I was probably slightly more alarmed than I would have been usually because i've been watching stranger things on netflix which has the combination of uh, a cold war setting and all sorts of horrible uh, supernatural goings on so at the back of my mind i'm thinking is it real is it happening here as well but it turns out this was a mistake florida does not intend to make a habit of testing its emergency broadcast system for no reason at 4.45 a.m. I think it was supposed to be 4.45 p.m. or was supposed to be sent only to televisions or something. Hopefully they will fix this.
0: Well, you know, if the governor weren't running, busy quasi running for president up up in Washington, D.C., maybe this wouldn't have...
1: Well, that's right. Because, you know, it's in the Florida Constitution that only the governor can press the emergency.
0: (laughs) button. So I was out in Fresno, California with Charlie. We have some good friends and Fresno had us out to uh, uh, talk and take questions from uh, a, a wonderful crowd of terrific people. Only downside is it is not easy to get to Fresno. It's one of those People places in the United States where uh, they're they're only connecting flights uh, there. That's just that's just the the way it is. And uh, uh, given the way connecting flights work, you're you're like, likely to miss one or two on on your way out there or the, the uh, on the way back. So it was a a bit of a hike, but a lot of fun when we were out there. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick?
2: Uh, I want to just use this opportunity to highlight the work done by our news team. I think they really do great stuff, especially on the the transgender issue. Um, I'm thinking of a recent uh, report by Ari Blaff on uh, undercover videos that Project Veritas had. And I just think that a lot of of outlets sort of overlook this stuff, but I think it's really important that uh, we don't and we don't. So that's commendable. Charlie, what's your pick?
1: Well, I have missed, as a result of travel, two editors' podcasts in a row, I believe. So I'm sure this has already been picked. But my pick is Daniel Hannan's magazine piece, How Shakespeare Changed Everything, which is one of the best pieces I've ever read, not just in National Review, but anywhere. It is absolutely magnificent. I was hooked from start to finish reading this piece on a plane on my phone. And in fact I have asked him to be on my podcast to discuss it this week. So I'll get Daniel Hannon both in written and verbal form.
0: Yeah, I I already I did did already pick it, but it's it's worth uh, it's probably worth another picker too. So my pick is the Christian Snyder column on the rewriting of PJ Woodhouse and Charlie, unfortunately, this is yet another thing that you can say you're prescient uh, about because in in uh, your a defense, maybe of Raoul Dahl or a piece you wrote about some of this insanity a couple months ago, you predicted this this is might be where they they go next, and, and sure enough, uh, they did. And th- this is uh, Christian is is a great writer, a dyspeptic. A uh, writer, and uh, you, you can tell that this, this really got his juices flowing because it, it's it's also a particularly long column for for him. But I think the highest praise for this one would be that uh, PJ Woodhouse himself probably would have enjoyed it. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly Prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Joey. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks to Donors Trust and I on the FTC from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.